Hello everyone, welcome back to the Latitude Podcast, a place where we talk to interesting and influential people doing doing impactful things connected to, uh, with or around South Africa. Today we chat to a good friend of mine, as you'll hear, but also someone who's done exceptionally well in their chosen career. That's Bridget Evans. Bridget is the executive director of the SAB Foundation, and they perform an important role in the funding ecosystem for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in South Africa. There's this term, social entrepreneurship and social innovation, which I think makes your typical commercially-minded investor or entrepreneur, etc., sort of turns them away a little bit, and I think that that's unfair. Um, Organisations like the SAB Foundation and others play a very important role in the funding ecosystem whereby they they take risks on uh, people and ideas that your typical uh, venture capital type investor in search of a return is unable to take legitimately unable to take and they 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 cross that bridge often that bridge is crossed by uh, government institutions and in south africa there are many of those that are uplifting entrepreneurship at the grassroots level but there are also private institutions and foundations that are that work closely with government to do that and i would say that the premier one in south africa is the sab foundation bridget has been the executive director of the foundation now for more than a decade she's dedicated her life to this cause and you could hear it come out in the conversation how proud she is of the work that she does and there are a few really good examples and she (laughs) it's easy to get her to share them i learned a lot about the social entrepreneurship social innovation space and why it's important in the funding ecosystem i learned a lot about cool businesses uh, that have come out of that space in South Africa and that are really doing well and have graduated into formal funding spaces. Um, So there's some nice success stories in here. It's a nice and educational podcast about that space and also just uh, felt good to have the conversation with a friend. Do enjoy. Now I bring you Bridget Evans. Bridget Evans, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lamont. It's great to be here. <laughs> uh, pleasure. Bridget and I are, I think people might pick it up um, <laughs> as we chat. You and I are old, old friends. Yeah. Uh, we've known each other since 2008. We did an MBA together at UCT. Um, and it's uh, interesting. You, I don't know if you know this, but you've had... Uh, big influence over my career. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. As you know, I've had a, had had a leg in the development sector for the last 10 years and have built up some products there, etc., which I, you know, myself and my team in that domain are very proud of. And yeah, you were so instrumental there. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. But I think, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah. well, you've had an amazing career. Thank you. I might have opened the door, but... You know, well, I mean, I just actually want to lead into using that as a as a springboard to lead into how you've spent 
your career. So, I mean, you got me into development sector work, which I wanted to do at the time. Um, I think you... I think you should clarify that it's socioeconomic development and not property development. No, sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, guys, socioeconomic development. Um, but not to put off those with an investment mindset. But Bridge, you've spent your basically your entire professional life in – why don't you describe the field that you've spent your entire professional life in, social innovation? Yeah, well, I think um, – I started my career as a, like a grant maker for a CSI fund. This is in the early 2000s. Yeah. And um, I always wanted to be involved in the sector. And I did that for three years where you literally received hundreds of applications. And then you, you read them, you analyzed them, and you gave a grant. And it was the most incredible education about what was going on in the country because I knew nothing before. Yeah. But after three years, I realized, actually, this is not sustainable. You know, here we are going in, giving a grant when they're going to need another grant next month and next month and next month, you know. And obviously, that's a huge generalization. And there is a whole sector that will always be grant dependent, like welfare and stuff. But I thought there's got to be different kind of thinking around how we solve these problems, um, so I went from there to to Gibbs, and um, and there I focused on social entrepreneurs. Not as a student at Gibbs, eh? No, uh, no, no, no. I was I was uh, the head of the I think it was called the. It was under Jill Marcus. Yes. And it was the Center for Leadership and Dialogue, and they had a program for social entrepreneurs, which I ran. Okay. Um, and it was very interesting. We ran courses for sort of people who identified themselves as social entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and then I thought I really started to think that the business end of socioeconomic development was really where the solutions lay. And so I, when I, when I arrived at Gibbs, I thought, geez, I used to see these MBA guys in the corridors and think, wow, you know, I put them on such pedestals. And then 18 months later, I was like, hang on a minute, why can't I do an MBA? So I did that. And that really was game changing for me because now I had a great business understanding, mm. worked in consulting on a whole range of socioeconomic development issues, um, but really wanted to be involved in social innovation itself. It's a relatively new field, so you know I think it's misunderstood. But I think I think as a country we really should take it more seriously. Yeah, I want to get into that. So social innovation. I mean, you know, you got your hardcore capitalists, right? And they just either are an entrepreneur and they want to do the thing they want to do and want to make money out of it, mm -hmm. uh, and they follow it with their passion or whatever the reason is, they grit through it. Mm. Uh, and then you've got your uh, investor, okay, who's also doesn't want to do any harm, you know, but like good opportunity, solid entrepreneur or solid investment opportunity, good returns, take the punt. What – so – and then you add in this word social and innovation. <laughs> and they and, shut down. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's eyes go, what is this now? 
Um, will I still make money? Is this a grant? Uh, does it is the government one of my partners? Who is this social entrepreneur? Are they like is it a is it a charity case? What is it? And like, like I'm kind of interested to explore. Why do people feel that way? Do people feel that way? Why do people feel that way? Is it changing? Let's <laughs> let's talk about how let's talk about how the field of social innovation has grown. Great. Let's okay. go. When I started working in the social innovation space, which was around 2006, um, <laughs> we we called it social entrepreneurship. You know, it's a social mm. entrepreneur, social innovation, same thing. We just say like an entrepreneur is further down the track. It's actually a business, whereas innovation could be the very early stages of something. Okay. Um, so uh, in 2006, <laughs> I remember telling someone that I worked with social entrepreneurs and they asked me, oh, um, are those entrepreneurs that organize events? Because <laughs> they're social. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, dear, we need to do some PR here. <laughs> but um, – you know, since then, UCT has a whole center for social entrepreneurship. Um, Oxford has a whole center for social innovation. Stanford has a center for social innovation. And I could say that about many universities, but those ones really stand out for me because okay. they're real pioneers. I mean, Stanford has a monthly newsletter that goes out called the so Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, and I think... You know, and these are business schools. Yes. You know, it's not, these are not like, you know, university, general university degrees. These are business schools um, where students can choose to go this kind of a route. And so I think what you saw, um, you know, the world of philanthropy and the world of investment were very far apart from each other. Mm. They didn't even speak the same language. And I think to some extent they still don't. Mm. Um but what has happened is that with the development of all of this kind of social entrepreneurship, so basically social entrepreneurs are trying to solve social problems through business structures and models. In other words, things that will be sustainable over time. Mm. Um, so um, interestingly enough, M-Pesa, which I think a lot of people know about, that is the… I don't. It's self. It's a cell phone where you could pay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, using cell phone your cell payments phone. thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that whole cell phone payment thing started in Kenya. Yes. And it started with grants. That little business started with grants. And Government proceeded. grants. Um, I think it was international grants. Okay. Mostly. Yeah. And it grew into not just a banking system that is prolific in East Africa, but. Everyone's copying them. South Africa now has a you know, stack of different products that they are now offering. And that was a social innovation. It was an attempt to bring banking to low-income groups, yes. convenient banking. Nice. So I've been like to – so in, in prep for this um, pod, mm -hmm. I was looking up the definitions of – social innovation and some of the most uh, recent research. And of course, it's one of those where definitions are sort of all over the place and the person doing the research creates their own definition mm. so that there's something to get around. But one definition that I really liked, uh, and it was quite sort of simple, was 
A social innovation is any innovation that is good for society and simultaneously enhances its ability to act. I loved that. And that's the first time in my mind I thought to myself, at a fundamental level, an economy is just the ability to move around and and take something from somewhere and, and turn it. Movement is so important and mm. action is so important. And that's why I love that, that definition of social innovation. And now I want to look at almost every opportunity is just what is the action that that enables in your economic agent. So let's go to this Impesa uh, thing. Why was that a social innovation? What action did it enable that it didn't before? Like... Why would you class that as a social innovation, right? Okay, so basically the way people traded was using cash because a lot of them live very, very far from an ATM, right? You've got like a lot of peri-urban rural people. um, And so it was such an inconvenient way and an unsafe way to handle money and to trade. So introducing a way of, of buying and selling using mobile technology was absolutely game-changing for those communities. Okay. And we have the same thing here. Like, you know, if you're, if you're living in a rural area in South Africa and you want to go and get money because everyone around you only accepts cash, you got to say you catch a taxi 50 k's away. That taxi ride's going to – when you've got very limited income – uh, that taxi ride costs you a hundred bucks. That's a significant portion of your monthly income, mm-hmm. you know. And so, by eliminating things like that um, and allowing people to keep their money safe, um, is 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 really uh, game changing. And it also, when you talk about the economy, money does move around quicker, you know, mm-hmm. because you, it's so easy to trade. Um, but obviously, I don't want to say that that's all social innovation is because financial inclusion is definitely one part of it. But I think what I would like to emphasize, firstly, is that when one looks at the the progression of social innovation, in those early days, it was very much about the – I think your definition is very much around the – driving people to act and it was much more the definition was much more social than business if you know what I mean um, but now I think it's it's become uh, different to that the thinking now is that it really must there must be under it must be underpinned by a business model um, and and with that with the potential that social innovation holds that many universities now feel mm. and um uh, you need some way to fund it. Yes. And so then this whole field of impact investing emerged. Um, and that, you know, the, that's a very interesting and a very big field. Because to be honest, like as the impact investors I've seen in South Africa, they don't want to compromise their financial returns at all. Um, and, but they're looking for investments with impact, okay. which is a great start a great start and um uh yeah so i think let's just be direct on that one right so okay okay so social innovation you say it needs an underlying business model great so it's mm-hmm. it can be a fully capitalist thing that does a good thing for society right? yeah. there are many examples of that mm-hmm. does an investor have to take a return hit by investing in a social innovation thing 
Is it, is it something that in general you make less money, less return out of? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I think, you know, the tricky thing is, uh, so it is a complex field, right? Because sometimes uh, your customer is not the person who pays. So, for example, you would come up with uh, an innovation that allows students to teach themselves in a school and the government would pay for that. Yeah, okay. You know, so, so the business models can be complex, um, but they can also be simple. Yes. So I think obviously the simplest ones are, you know, where you are just providing um, something and you your customer is directly the, the low-income person. Yes. All of those other ones are, are difficult. And I guess, let me get to the point. Um, so, <laughs> so, so like your, um, you, though a lot of these models take a lot of grant funding okay. up front. And when you look at it globally, it's the same thing. So MPESA is a good example. Um, so that's where people like us come in. Is we kind when of when you say like us, you mean the SAB foundation? I mean the SAB foundation. Yeah. Cool. Um, there's very few of us in South Africa that are funding this early stage social innovation, but you know, a lot. I mean, I know that we have two unicorns that we have basically grown from scratch. I so know that they will be unicorns. You they mean. will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your. You're confident that. Yeah, they I are. am. You I feel am. free to talk about them if you if you are at liberty to do so, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the one I am. Okay. <laughs> we're not protective, uh, but. I have to be a little bit protective because, you know, we've launched a fund, which maybe we can talk about just now. Okay. But um, so one of them is called um, Liquid Medical. And this is an ophthalmologist who came up with a new treatment for glaucoma. He's from UCT. And it's a device that you implant in the eye, which is a radically different type of surgery that people than anyone has been using up until now. Okay. And uh, Glaucoma. What's the founder's name? Damon McLoonan. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And um, and so, you know, there you've got um, something which, if successful, will completely change the way a, the leading cause of, cause of blindness in people over 60 is treated, you know, globally. So that's amazing. Yeah. And when you say unicorn, do you mean it'll be you predict it's going to be a one billion dollar company? I do. Mm. That is amazing. I do. They've also got other, you know, they're working on other types of devices all around in the ophthalmology field. But let me give you another example that's totally different. Can we stay there for yeah, a little bit sure. on that example, right? So just sure. I'm interested to know how did that come across the desk of SAB Foundation? And why yeah. is it that SAB Foundation's funding needs to go into it at this point uh, and it's not not a traditional – I mean, if it's mm. going to be a billion-dollar company, mm -hmm. your, your normal private equity or venture capital people just be jumping all over it, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it about uh, the social innovation upfront requirement of funding that was necessary there? Okay. So this one particularly, um, health – Health stuff always needs a lot of research okay. and a lot of clinical trials before it ever makes it into the, you know, 
into the domain of being a business. Okay, so there was an R&D component that mm. you guys were prepared to take the risk for there and fund it. Mm. And now that's worked out, obviously. So they're in their last phase of clinical trials. Okay. The, the trials looked, have all been very, very strong. Um, glaucoma is around having too much pressure build up on the eye. And they have shown that there's a massive reduction in, 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 in pressure on the eye. So the tests are looking very positive. They haven't finished them. They haven't finished them, but they are being invited to speak all over the world. Oh, amazing. They're in the process of registering with the FDA. Okay. And um, so we actually took an equity stake in that business ourselves. Yeah, no, no, of uh, course. Yeah. yeah. But we in our first round, uh, all of the money went to clinical trials. Okay. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, okay, so now they're going to come out of clinical trials. There's going to be a very viable commercial opportunity there, and presumably mm. they're just going to get traditional funding, right? Okay, so this is a great example. This is t- very clearly a social innovation. I wanted to just uh, – Sorry, just the treatment will be low cost as well in Africa. So I think that also and one needs to say that about why it's a social innovation. Yes. Okay, low cost, solving blindness. Um, it's a biggie. <laughs> yeah, seems, <laughs> I mean, I don't need to know the definition to that, that one ticks the boxes. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, congratulations on, on, on being a catalyst for that opportunity. And I really do hope it becomes a unicorn. Amazing. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might be calling you asking how they can invest. But uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of interested to know, like, the I understand the motivation of funders like the SAB Foundation and others sort of call it patient, soft slash patient capital that sees the long-term financial trajectory but is just prepared to take a little bit more risk early on, Mm. which is basically the case. Mm. I mean, that's really – it's very, very early stage, high-risk funding for opportunities. I'm interested to know – so I understand your – the motivation of that kind of funding – but I'm interested in the motivation of the entrepreneur. So, like – do social entrepreneurs always know that they're social entrepreneurs or they've invented something that has this social impact and then you're like, ah, oh, right, okay, this counts. So how does one motivate mm-hmm. more social entrepreneurship to actually happen or is it just that you must identify and fund it, right? Uh, yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, there's definitely um, – I, I think you're absolutely right. Some people just get on with it. And then you look after 10 years and their business is doing really well and they're solving a huge problem and they never thought of themselves in that way. Yes. Yeah, and I think I'm not a purist at all. I'm not an academic and I don't, you know, I'm not really that interested in definitions. I think uh, for me it's just if, if an innovation has the ability to really address one of the problems in the country at scale um, and that pr- creates a lot more efficiency and better service delivery, then uh, we want to get involved in that, you know. Mm. And we, 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 you know, we, we, we absolutely should take a lot of risk. That, I believe that's what grant funding is for. You know, as you, you go in first, you take the risk, no one's going to lose anything, and you prepare these guys for future investment, Guys and girls. I mean, if it's a grant, someone might Guys lose something, right? Yeah, it's the. No, we. I mean, we. You know, we have those that are really performing very strongly, and some of them have 
Uh, we've recently launched a loan fund. Okay. I think loans, we might do a bit of equity as well. Yeah. Um, and some of them have applied to that. So that will be a natural next step for them. Okay. Um, but we, we never lose touch with them. So we keep doing round after round. Mm. And then, then some of them do get picked up by VCs. And well, that's the intention, right? So you fund yeah. where the VC won't, but as soon as it's VC ready, yeah, off you go. Yeah, I think one of the challenges sometimes with VCs is that they want massive returns. They want the promise of massive returns, right? The promise of massive returns. Because return. they're picking, I mean, the reason for that is they're picking out in a portfolio. So if you're picking 10 and you know X number are going to lose, you, each one you pick needs to have yeah. a strong chance of, kick, of, of winning. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that, you know, and I think, you know, different sectors of diff of the financial industry have different functions, right? But we want to make sure that before VCs are even interested in these businesses, we want to, if we really believe in it, we want to make sure that it gets as far as it can go before that kind of investment. So we allow them to come back for a second round. This loan fund's actually a third round. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'll give you an example. I also think that something that some VCs don't understand and investors don't understand is low-income markets. And I remember years ago, it was when I was still at Gibbs, um, there was a book that started being circulated. It was written by C.K. Prahalad, and it was called The Fortune at, Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Mm. And... Um, and really what all it was saying is that we all charging i mean most businesses are, are are really targeting higher lsms and and there's very few people actually targeting lower lsms and and if i think of pep stores for example mm. i think that was genius and i do think that that in its time when it started was a social innovation because yeah. it was one of the very few companies in the old South Africa that actually targeted low income markets and they've done so well as a result. I mean, it's amazing. I, I've got an example. I just want to jump in there because yeah. I, I had a podcast earlier on today before, um, before you and I was interviewing head of strategy at Uber, Uber, not Uber, the ride company, mm -hmm. Uber, the bond originator. Okay. So he's, uh, you know, he's one of the country's property experts and he's an insider there. And he asked me a question. He said, do you know what the middle market is in the residential real estate market? It's between five and 700,000 Rand. That's the middle market, actually. Wow. Uh, it's, so it's much lower than mm, I expected it to too. be. And do you know that there is, there is no, the, the, the constraint there is a shortage of supply. He said it would take decades to get enough supply on stream to house the people that can afford bonds in that bracket. And he says a major part of the problem is that actually developers are just focusing on their traditional people that they know have money and can afford it. They don't even know that there's this massive stock of people that want homes, can buy homes, but but there's nothing to buy. And those people don't, you know, so there's, there's just a completely yeah. unmade market there. It's amazing. I think they know, but they maybe don't see it as lucrative enough for no. them to focus on it. No, I agree. I think they, we've seen some innovation in the property space. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some incredible examples, but not necessarily purchasing more rentals. Yeah. Um, but where, you know, they've converted massive old buildings in downtown Johannesburg into safe 
um, affordable housing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think we need to see more of it. Uh, one of the things I've come across is that there are not nearly enough black property developers in mm. South Africa. You know, it's still very, very dominated by um, white property developers who, who probably don't understand that market very well. I think you're right. They don't understand that market. Yeah, and um, that's the thing. I, I imagine yeah. that's why they haven't built those properties. Yeah. Right? I think that's like the South Africa. We've sort of we've we haven't we're not blended enough. Uh, you know, we've got the racial divide, the socioeconomic divide. Those exist on the same lines, but they also sort of intersect a bit mm. weirdly. There's so much that the people that want to do good work and have the ability to do good work can create for the people that need them to do it, mm. but they don't know enough about those people, their cultures, their contexts, their way of living, working, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are there some like, I mean, you would know, like what are lessons from the field along that those lines? Like what, what do you... What is someone like me, your middle-aged, white, commercially-minded uh, person in South Africa, what do I not know about what's going on in those communities that is potentially of really high investment value? Like, I mean, delivery in, in, in township areas, you know? That's mm. something that's mushroomed over the last couple of years. Mm. Those de- um, Uber and all of that doesn't going to the townships mm. but yet there are there's there's now people coming out of the townships that are actually doing delivery services within townships you mm. know so actually you can order and have delivered to your home right mm. um so there are things like that that have started to happen now um for me i mean I, i'm always like on the social side but recognizing that the economic value of that the socioeconomic value of that for a low-income person is all really around public transport and the fact that, like, Kailicha has one mall, you know, mm. and Kailicha is massive. Mm. And so someone now has to get in a taxi, go to the mall. They're going to have to probably take a second seat in that taxi to take all their shopping back. Now you've got a delivery service. And these are popping up everywhere, and the things that I th- the ones where I think are very interesting are actually the rural ones. Those rural delivery services, I mean, I've been on like a ride around <laughs> with one in Ishawi. And it's fascinating because, yeah, you know, people are so happy to pay for that service. You know, often we look at them um, and we say, oh, shame, you know, that's an unemployed poor person. But they're not. They're a different type of market. And you need to understand now. They have to make very, very difficult choices every month about what they are going to do without and what they're going to prioritize. Mm. And and yet, you know, I mean, they really prioritize this service. And I think we don't understand enough mm. um, how people think and what they value. Mm. Um, you know, there's another business in that has um, popped up in – that we've also funded. I mean, everything I'm talking about, we've funded. Yes. Um, there's one that's popped up, which I think is so interesting. And that is a, um, it is, and, and interestingly enough, C.K. Prahalad wrote about this in his book back in, when I read it, like 2006 or whatever. Mm. And only now am I seeing it take off 
And I'm just like, wow, okay, it's taken a long time, but it's here. And what it is, is allowing people to purchase whatever amount of maize meal they can afford for one day. So if they only have enough money for like maize meal for a day, they can purchase that. And oh, cool. um, yeah, 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 so there's a whole lot of staple foods that they can purchase just with their purchasing power that they have for that day. And that is doing really well. So, um, you know, it's, you know, all the, all the staples, sugar, maize meal, oil. And you go there and you take your Tupperware. So you're saving. So first of all, the, the guy who runs that thing gets it at warehouse costs. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, sorry, retail. What do you call it? Wholesale. Wholesale. That's the word. Um, and then he, he sells it in little small quantities in a shop. People bring their own containers. Yes. So, you know, it, it's just for me, I, don't, I can't believe it's taken us this long to think of this, right? Mm. Because it's so simple and it really makes so much sense. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's something that's uh, – I'm, I'm sort of waking up to it now because, uh, I mean, I'm, I met a German investor recently, successful guy. Uh, he's building products in South Africa. And he's building products in South Africa that are going to be used in Europe. He's building products in South Africa that are going to be used by – high-end uh, LSMs, higher LSMs. But he's also, he's plowing into the townships and he's saying that the level of trade that happens in those townships, he's, there's this whole other economy. It but, is. But it's not being, like they don't form trade associations, they don't form supply chain routes. These people have to mm -mm. get out of there, go to clicks, buy expensive things, come exactly. back. and. And and he says we are just ignoring it. And his is he, him as a European is seeing. Okay, well, if these guys are not going to go in there, I'm going to go do it. It's like the story with our banks. They don't bank the unbanked, the old traditional banks. You know, yeah, I think that mindset pervades amongst local capital. Right? Well, I think you know the banks are learning. So I mean, there are now mobile mobile trading platforms out there. Yes, because someone Africa. else did it, and then now it works. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. Now, but you know, they did. They launched Impesa once years ago. I can't remember which bank did it, and it flopped. Uh -huh. um, and I'm, I can't remember the reasons why, but one of it was Fika to do with Fika, in that a rural household doesn't have an address. Oh, okay. So I mean, again, like we've got people who are geo mapping rural households' addresses because if you don't have an address. You can't take a loan. There's all sorts of things that you don't have access to if you don't have an address. So they, uh, you know, they are now mapping villages, rural villages. I mean, I remember when Impesa, I mean. But I mean, isn't that just extremely inefficient? I, I just kind of like want to go, is that, is that an example in your mind of kind of where government's tripping over itself uh, and stopping innovation that otherwise would happen through having too many rules or administrative red tape. Mm. I mean, I want to touch the policy side of social innovation at some point, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think that to – I think people are starting to recognize that there's value in targeting low-income groups, but, but you're absolutely right. Like, uh, it's – it really needs – it could be so much more targeted than it is. And what's happening is you've got, you know, young black innovators that see these opportunities and they're snatching them up. 
good for them, mm. you know. And that's where you're starting to see innovation. We want to see those as thriving businesses in 10 years' time. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example, and this is – I find this fascinating because – I thought this was high risk and probably wouldn't work, but we took a chance on it anyway. Is this the other unicorn? No, no. This is um, a, a medical savings card. So all it is is, yeah, it's a savings card where you can save money every month and the only thing you can use that card for is pharmacies and doctors and whatever. Okay. And I thought to myself, why do you need another card, right? Why would this take off? But what I hadn't understood is that – for a person that is not earning a lot of money, who doesn't have medical aid, um, you know, if the money sits in one bank account, they'll use they're it. They're going to spend it. Yeah. So they want, they really see value in keeping it separate. Yes. And, and it's and it's really taking off. You know, That's and I amazing. think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, What's it called? It's called Oyi Medical. O Y I. Oyi Medical. Yeah. Cool. Oye Medical. Um, yeah, so I mean, I just find, what I love to learn is why some things work so well and yeah. why things don't. Totally. Like, we get so many apps, so many apps. And um, why do some go viral and others not? Mm. You know, there are so many apps that could solve so many problems in this country. They all think they can solve every problem. But every single one of them thinks that they're going to make money from advertising or data. Every single one. Mm. And so it's very tricky for us. I mean, we're very skeptical with apps and we have to be very careful because those business models are tough. But we have one that has 30, I think it's like 30 or 40,000 kids using it. What is that um, app? It's called Grades Match. And what um, does it do? So Grades Match, it was originally called Grades Match, Um but now it's, I think it's changed its name to Bridge. And what they started doing was uh, allowing kids to basically uh, find out things about different careers, whether, whether they were sitting in rural, um, you, know, you know, outside, in a, sorry, in a rural area somewhere in the country or whether they were in an urban center. And they were trying to solve that problem where UJ was stormed that year because so many kids thought they were in and they didn't get in and then they had to close the gates and people, it was terrible, people were crushed. So they started this because they wanted to democratize access to tertiary institutions okay. no matter where you were. Because what happens is a kid who sits in Umtata, gets when he goes for his career advice, they will tell him, uh, yeah, uh, Nelson Mandela University. And Forte, those are the two. And um, why don't you do engineering? He, they don't even know when they finish matric that you need maths for engineering. I mean, the career guidance is so poor. Okay. So this takes care of all of that. So it's like AI career guidance and and sort of. It, well, it's it's expanded now to being bursary opportunities, loan opportunities for kids to get through schools. Smart. It's um yeah, it's it's a it's really serving huge needs in the education system. And how does that thing make money? Um, in their case, I think it is advertising. Okay. But they are not there. They're not there where they're making a lot of money yet. Okay. You know? Yeah. And 
but it sounds like a good one where you could get affiliates on board because you've got a whole you, yeah you've got a base of people there and then I think so. students need a lot of stuff right yeah. so then you, yeah, yeah that makes sense and I think it's it's people who want to target that particular market and I think it's about I think when it comes to an app yes when you've got a very so this is a great example of something you should totally fund because whenever yeah, yeah one of the common Mistakes you see, well, one of the common things you'll see is a, is a person is pitching and one of the things they try and get investors excited about is the scale effects. They'll be like, mm-hmm. yes, we'll have all this data that we yeah. can then sell and we've, mm-hmm. we can AI out of the data. Or yes, we can sell, we can get affiliates on board, we can do marketing, uh, other people can access these people because we'll have all of them. But I'm like, yeah, but you've got to get them. Mm. Yeah. How are you going to so, find them? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. you got to get them on board. And so what, what is the expectation that, that I fund your growth? I mean, you just don't yeah. have that money, right? Unless, there's, unless it's something that's really, really going to go massive, like Facebook or whatever, it's very hard to fund something like yeah. that. But in your case, that makes a lot of sense to fund something that like yeah. that to a point where there's advertising possibility scale right yeah and we have a lot of interesting ones we really we we really wish they would take off but they haven't so Mm. like for example things fail yeah of course yeah but like for example where there's quite a few people that have come up with registering small artisans on a platform and then you rate them and whatever and they start to build um they start to build clients that way and a community that way Mm. that's so tough eh? why doesn't that work i don't know I don't know. Like, um, there's some guy here in Cape Town. Uh, he started something called Fix Forward about a decade ago. Yeah. It's still limping along, and I don't know why. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think reliable township services in the township, I think that's the gap. And we've had more of those recently where um, to find, um, like, for example, my, um, my housekeeper, she bought a house and then um, it needed to be painted inside before she moved in. So she went and found a painter and he came so drunk the first day. <laughs> and it was like mm. the, the paint job is like got paint dripping down the walls. Okay. And then the next day it just and she never w- pitched up. she wasn't up. going for that look. Next okay. day it just, he just never pitched up again. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know. For people in townships, you've got, you know, I mean, obviously there's some very wealthy people in townships, but, um, you know, for those that really, it's very difficult for them to find, um, you know, the right kind of service provider that's mm. not going to take them for granted. Mm. Um, so And difficult for a good service provider to stand out from the crowd in that environment as well. So it does sound… exactly. It does sound like there would be some sort of room. It would room, work really well. Yeah, some sort know? of room for a market yeah. maker there. And we have another business also, which I think is interesting, which is really around bulk buying. You mm. know, spaza shops, um, they have to take a day off or a morning off to go and buy the stock and bring it in, and then they pay normal prices. So this actually collects all spazas into one group and then they bulk buy together yes. and the stuff gets delivered. Okay. So that's another interesting one where there is money to be made there, you know. Talk to me, yeah. Uh, talk to me about the other unicorn. Okay. Predicted. This is very early stage. Yes, but you said unicorn. Um, now I'm, you are I'm back in this one here. Yeah, billion dollar company. Come on. No, let's, well, let's see. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, no, the first Not one. Billion I, dollar company. What well, about a, I don't know. 
Well, the unicorn's a billion dollars. Is it? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, okay. But okay. I know what you mean by unicorn. Yes. A magical, amazing, awesome company. Yes, that's what I mean. Okay, cool. I don't mean a billion dollars. <laughs> but I mean a worthwhile investment, to yes. put it that way. Okay, tell us about yeah. the other unicorn. Um, um, so the other one is called Kotonki, which I love the name. Mm, so and I, I think it means donkey cart. Um, <laughs> basically what it is, is a low-cost utility vehicle for farmers. Um, so it, oh. it's much – so if you had to buy a tractor, so I can't tell you how many smallholder farmers, you know, really need a tractor. Yeah. Um, and it's 600,000 rand, a tractor. Is that what it costs? I think some, something like that. Like yeah. a cheap one or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and this one costs under 100,000 rand. It's this funny little vehicle, but it's got the same power as a tractor. Yeah. And it's got all sorts of, you can use it for harvesting. You can use it for carrying, you know, heavy goods, okay. short distances. Um, are we making this thing in South Africa? We, we are. We you, are. So you came, this is amazing. I'm tell telling us. you. <laughs> no, tell us a little bit more about the idea. Can you talk about it? Uh, yeah. So basically, um, again, you know, they came to us where I think they had made a prototype or, or they hadn't even finished their prototype because they needed some funding. Yes. We funded them. They they built the first prototype. Okay. Or maybe even the second one. And then we we did an article for them in some magazine. Uh, we, we get quite a lot of PR um, opportunities for these guys because people find their stories interesting. Yeah. I keep saying, guys, I'm sorry. I can't believe it, like I'm being sexist and I'm a woman. There are lots of wonderful women in our pipeline as well. Okay. Um, but, yeah, uh, so the advert that we – not an advert, the, the, the article that we got for them, basically they started getting orders from all over Africa, right? Yeah. And so now it's like uh, there are a bunch of engineers that love the idea, built this thing, and okay, so they are not uh, needy farmers that invented this thing. It's no. engineers that saw a market yes. and invented a low-cost tractor. Yeah. Okay. But but emerging farmers across the continent. Where are they? Are they Cape Town, Joburg? Joburg. Okay. Yeah, outside Joburg somewhere. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we think, no, we think it's got legs, man. That is amazing. What's That's it called? so cool. The Kotonki. Kotonki. <laughs> We gave them an award just because we love saying the <laughs> yeah, name. Totally. <laughs> donkey. Donkey. That is amazing. Yeah. Okay, low-cost tractor. Brilliant. I mean, I can totally see that's a great example. Like yeah. big market, big need, massive mm -hmm. cost reduction for the farmer, uh, social innovation, but probably not something that a traditional VC would fund during the R&D phases. And sure. then again, you No, but they're selling them. No, I know, but mm. I'm get. I'm saying you you gave them early stage funding yeah. to get them to the point, mm. right? Mm. That's amazing. And we want to keep funding them, yeah, because we don't want a VC to come and take a massive stake of their business. Well, no, why not? Yet. Yes, and no. also you can take a stake, right? I know we, we can. You guys have a fund now where yeah, you can where fund. you can do real equity stakes. Yeah, I mean, we would we would do a five year buyout type equity deal, so quasi equity. Okay. Um, because yeah. we don't, we, you know, our intention is not to make money. Our intention is to enable and to create jobs. 
All right. So, so you don't want a long-term portfolio of assets that you've helped build, right? Okay. That's no, I think, you know, I think we look at it from different points of view. Mm. So we have an endowment and, um, you know, that endowment has a balanced portfolio of shares like every other endowment. Yeah, which you got from SAB. Which we endowment. got from SAB. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that can never go away. It's protected capital that you yeah. manage on your own and you yeah. take – some of it each year and deploy, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But there's no reason why we can't, if we really believe in it, take, a, you know, just like you'd buy a share in Coke, you take a, you, you buy a share in one of these businesses. So obviously we have to protect the assets and we have to be responsible. Yes. But, um, but you know, we can, we can do an equity deal. So that's what we did with Liquid Medical, you okay. know. So that was using our endowment. Yes. So we could do things like that, but we are at this point like our fund is more developmental. So we are trying to grow businesses and create jobs, businesses that other people don't want to finance yet because they perceive it as being too risky. But yeah. we don't because we think our winning recipe is how well we know these businesses. Yeah, totally. Mm. Now I think that's amazing. So today we've you've just I think your work's incredible. So congratulations. Um Thank you. No, tears I in love my it. eyes, actually. I love it. Um, I'm interested to know how you balance the – so for me, it's very clear that, uh, okay, so you're funding where your traditional risk funder probably can't take that level of risk. So you guys are doing the R&D mm. funding. A couple of these things pop up and they look unicorn-ish with our broader definition of unicorn that we've just come up with yes. today, but very high potential. <laughs> <laughs> um, financial return businesses and those uh, liquid medical actually I mean that's amazing that could be unicornish it could be um, but uh, it, th so those you understand like you perform a role in the traditional funding landscape you know you've got seed funding VC private equity mm. listing whatever the case may be Um but this is the the bit that's happening before that in the social realm and very much like in the R&D kind of space to get mm. it ready. But then there are other things there that are not – that you fund that are not really R&D. They're just kind of like um, – they're never going to be unicorny, but they're nice for the people that are going to use it. And so you just – those some of those you fund just because you want them to just at some point become self-sustaining, right? They don't necessarily need to be – Unicorny. Mm. Well, we prefer we prefer looking at things where there is the opportunity for a for a lot of scale. Okay. Yeah. More systemic change. Okay. Um, I think, and that's where I've seen. So you want to find something that a VC will get excited about at some point in the future. Yeah, we we, we really. That's we the want aim. the business to grow. Yeah. So. But the challenge is whether or not we're aiming for a VC to fund it. That's a different question. I think traditional VCs, uh, we would prefer to get, you know, things like what they call angel investors and um, and impact investors because they, in many of these things, because they their capital can be more patient mm. and um, they are really about the impact, not the quickest route to profitability, which is sometimes a different route. Mm. You know? No, so I totally understand that this must be someone with your motivation and the motivation of what you do. Mm. There's always going to be that, ah, 
okay, this is now in the full-on hardcore financial return world. Mm. Mm. Yes, so I understand why you would hold on as long as possible, pick patient capital as long as possible. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing that I, you know, there's different, obviously there's different kinds of business models, different kinds of social innovation, but I think a significant portion of the innovation that we see is really around improving government service delivery. Mm. And that's where I feel I w there's a gap because okay. um, this this innovation needs to be nurtured and they need like when when someone who who I mean let me give you an example paper video paper video is a um, it's an innovation where um, they it's exam preparation and it has a, you get a book that's got exam questions in it and then you've got a barcode next to that. When you put your phone over the barcode, a teacher pops up and teaches you that question. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah, and there's like 30,000 teacher videos on this thing. Um, but trying to, that is where, you know, that is huge improvement in terms of efficiency in education because you don't, none of these, a lot of kids can't afford tutors. Yeah. But they can muddle through using this because they can watch the teacher teach it 20 times, right? Yes. So, yeah. So, I mean, they're going to, you know, it's a different kind of thinking around education. And so there's that. Then we've got another one uh, like Vula, for example. Yeah. Vula is um, a health app where it's a, it's an app where, Public sector, we, we, sorry, rural doctors can speak to public sector hospital specialists and diagnose and treat really quickly. Okay. Yeah. So they can get specialist help uh, in a rural situation. Yeah. 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 But what that needs to, I mean, and that is so So you simple. need the government to embrace these yes. two things is what you're saying. No, yeah. I, I think they need to embrace a lot of the stuff and test it. Yeah. But, but I think I mean, it is, I think, I'm not saying government should adopt all this innovation, but I'm saying we need better lines of, open lines of communication. Yes. You know, when I did a, um, an, a study tour with Investec a few years ago to Israel to go and learn about their social enterprise ecosystem. And I was chatting to the guys in the lab First of all, I must tell you that there's no, it's not like their innovation's better than ours at all. Okay, really? Um, no, which was, you know, amazing thing to discover. Yes. You know, and, but what, um, what was interesting was I said to these guys, so they had come up with innovation to improve government service delivery. And I said to them, well, what happens once you've developed it? And they looked at me like I was mad. I said, well. Government just government takes it. Government takes it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, such a stupid question. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my word, if you only knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think government is, but it's, it's just, you know, it, it takes a long, long time. You know, we, we, we invested in something called Pelebox, which is also, it's a locker system yes. in clinics where people can collect their medication. So um, what happens is you get sent, um, you get sent a password and a PIN number or whatever, and you get told your medication is in this locker and it will be available between this time and this time. So that, that kind of cuts out the days and days of queues that some people have to go through to get chronic medication. And the, you must also remember the, that, you know, that's such a drain on the economy because they miss days of work every month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's just...
no, I don't want to leave here. I have wonderful working relationships with government. You know, we work very closely. I mean, the IDC, the Technology Innovation Agency, they're doing fantastic work. The Jobs Fund. So I have a lot of respect with some of the things that government are doing in this space. Sure. No, no, it's true. And I work with government quite a lot as well and uh, on the healthcare side. And I must say, uh, they've fully adopted a uh, – the, the Department of Health has fully adopted a, a quality assurance program that we built. And it's uh, – you know, so with the right relationships and the right people and, mm. and a joint – effort it does happen but the one thing i do i mean we're coming up on an hour bridge and you've been so generous with your time but i'm like the the point that you made about uh the sort of very genuine authentic point that you made when you went to israel and you didn't think that their innovations were any better than ours that is so encouraging Mm -hmm. we have incredible engineering talent we just got to we just got to get it right yeah well, I must tell you, like, we have just finished reviewing this year's applicants to our Social Innovation Awards, yes. which is basically how we find these people. And I tell you, I've done it now for nine years. This is my ninth year of reading those applications. And every year I'm like, oh, come on, there's not going to be anything new. And every year I'm blown away. Every year. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's getting better. Bridge, thank you for the wonderful work you do for our country. And, uh, yeah, even though it's funded by Beer Drinkers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> beer Drinkers Unite. Uh, Bridge, thanks very much for your time. Seriously, it's been awesome. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks, thanks, Lamont. Thanks, Lamont.